So, Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11. Let's read together. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. It's hard to read that passage without just wanting to scream out, amen. We think about what our Lord has done for us. See, Paul starts off the, the letter to the Philippians in chapter one by, by commending them, by saying that he's proud of the way that they have stood firm in the gospel of Jesus. But he finishes the, the first chapter of Philippians by saying this, and if you can turn back a page, probably 127 to 29. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come to you and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So I love it with the way Paul words some of these things. It has been granted to you to suffer. It's like, well, what if I don't want that? But it has been granted to you to suffer. And Paul is giving them, chapter two is how to endure the suffering. And he gives a highlight a few verses earlier where he says, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind together for the faith of the gospel not alarmed by your opponents, and actually, it's a sign of destruction for them. Because when we stand firm in the faith together, when we stand firm in the gospel together, it is a sign of destruction to those who oppose Jesus. Because they see that the people of God are strong, that the people of God are together, that the people of God worship together and love together and change the world together. It's life-changing, and it's mind-altering to the people who see it happening. So the main point of chapter two is unity in Christ. And, and Paul gives four, four, and four. Four realities that motivate unity, four marks of spiritual unity, and four means of achieving spiritual unity. <clears throat> we'll start in verse one with the first four. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion. The first reality that motivates uh, unity is encouragement in Christ. 
It's really cool. I, I love the languages that happen within the biblical context here. And the word for encouragement is periclesis. It has the root meaning of coming alongside and giving assistance. By offering three things, comfort, counsel, and exhortation. It's exemplified by the, by the, the Good Samaritan. You know the Good Samaritan, he comes along, the guy that's been beaten and robbed, and he takes him, and he takes him, he does what he can to clean him up, he takes him to the inn, and he gives the, the innkeeper two denarii and says, hey, anything else that you spend on this man, take care of him, when I come back, I'll pay you the rest. He offered assistance and comfort and was there for the man who had been injured, somebody he didn't even know. But the beautiful thing here is when we look at the words, using a closely related word, so paraclesis for encouragement, Jesus says in John 14, 16, I will give you the paracleton. So it has the same root here, another helper. I will send you another helper, the Holy Spirit. And so when we think and we look at what it means to encourage people, we have the example of the one who encourages us, the one who is in us and with us and through us and for us. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So when we think about what it means to be an encouragement to others, we think about how the Holy Spirit is there for us. He counsels us. When we ask and we pray to God, God, show me the way, show me the path forward, what we are saying, whether we know it or not, are saying, Holy Spirit, guide me. Show me the direction and the path of my life that you want me to go. And then when we are in sorrow and we are in pain and we are suffering, he says that he has given us a comforter. So he comforts us. And a comfort that comes from within is a comfort that is deeper and stronger than any comfort that can come from the outside. And then when we fall and we falter, we have a spirit that convicts our soul and exhorts us to walk with God again. So when we think about what it means when he says that there is any encouragement in Christ, we are to be like the Holy Spirit is to us, to others. We are to be imitators of God, as it says in Ephesians. And so when we look at this, what does it mean to encourage one another? We encourage one another as the Spirit encourages us. It is the most important and powerful thing that the Spirit does. The second reality that motivates unity is consolation of love. Consolation has the literal meaning of speaking closely with someone with the added, with the added piece of giving comfort and solace. It's, it's very close to this encouragement. This consolation of love and the paraclesis are very close to each other. Both words involve a close relationship marked with genuine concern, helpfulness, and love different from just knowing someone. We don't just, to be unified, we don't just have acquaintances. As the church of Jesus Christ, we have fellowship in the spirit, which we'll talk about in a minute. Our relationships are deeper because the spirit indwells us. Our relationships should be more than like, yeah, I know that guy, I know that girl. It should be tight and deep marked by genuine concern, helpfulness, and love. It's the same consoling love that the Lord grants us. In Romans 5, 5, it says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. One thing you'll notice when we talk about unity is it's all about the Spirit. <laughs> it's all about the Spirit. 
Because we, we have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is inside of us. And the Spirit is the one that connects spirit to spirit, person to person in the body of Christ. It's all about the Spirit. So we love the same way that Christ loved us. In 1 John, and my wife told me I go really quickly through verses. So I'm, I'm just gonna, some of these verses I'm just going to read. And she's not the only one who's told me this. Many people have told me this. Um, we're staying in Philippians. We'll go to Acts in a minute. But some of these I'm just going to read. Um, so I don't want you to like, oh, he's too fast. Um, 1 John 4.11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. In verse 19, we love because he first loved us. And then Ephesians 5 is this sweet, sweet advice and the sweet words of Paul. Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I love the picture of this. Paul's words give us this idea that Jesus giving his life up for us was this like, it wasn't just like this great sacrifice, it was a fragrant offering. People make fun of me in my office because I have this, this uh, pumpkin candle that I light, and it's like, it's like 30 pumpkin candles are being lit at the same time. You can smell it like in the sanctuary from my office. But when we think about the fragrant offering of Jesus, something that like is recognized and seen by many that are around, it's not just something that is a, a, a one-to-one thing, it's a one-for-all thing. It's a fragrant offering that people can experience. It's not just from him to the Father, it's from him to all of us to the Father. It's a beautiful and amazing thing that happens. And so, when he says, be imitators of God, we are to offer ourselves as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. And we do that through being a sacrifice to one another, loving one another, consolation of love, to console one another in love, just as the Spirit consoles us. The third reality that motivates unity is fellowship of the Spirit. Our, our youth will be going to a camp this summer called Camp Koinonia, and that's the same word here, this fellowship. I love the, like, the idea that we're going to fellowship. It describes a partnership and a mutual sharing, this word koinonia. And this fellowship is intimate because it involves the Spirit. See, every believer in Christ is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He is the seal of the believer's eternal inheritance, the source of spiritual power, spiritual gifts, and spiritual fruit. Alone, we can accomplish nothing. Together, unified in Christ, everything. So to inhibit or be indifferent to spiritual unity is to both grieve the spirit and to quench his work. It's like a, a slap in the face a little bit. We think about yeah, we want to be unified in Christ. We want to do these things. But the opposite of it is actually to quench the work of the Spirit. When we don't seek unity, when we don't seek one another's better interests, when we don't look out for one another, love one another, and be there for one another, we actually are quenching the work of the Spirit. That's a place I don't want to be. I know that none of us want to be there. The new believers... In Acts chapter 12, you can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. This is a great, this is a great place to be. Uh, there might not be a better example of spirit-led unity ever 
than this chapter right here, than this section of verses. We're going to be in verse 41, Acts chapter 2, verse 41 through 47. Two. I said 12, I didn't mean it, I meant 2. We'll be in 12 in a few minutes. Acts chapter 2, 41 through 47. So then, those who had received the word were baptized. This is right after Pentecost, right? The, the, word, the, the Holy Spirit has come upon the people. They're speaking in all the languages of the people that are there. And people are coming to know Christ. And so, so then, those who had received his word were baptized And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, no, no doubt, right? And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and their possessions, and they were sharing them with all as anyone might have need, day by day continuing. Here it is. With one mind in the temple and the breaking of bread from house to house, and they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And this is the best part. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So when you have unity, you see salvation. When there's unity in the church, people come to know Christ as Savior. It's an incredible and beautiful thing. Here's the thing. We get, when we are unified, we get rewarded. When we are unified in Christ, we get rewarded. Now, not rewards like the prosperity gospel is going to tell you where, you know, you're going to get a house and a car and a, and a raise. We get rewarded by seeing the work of the Holy Spirit, which is far more valuable than any money, any car, any house, anything, to see God work in his people. And that's what he's doing here. They were literally giving everything they had for one another, serving one another, loving one another, submitting themselves to the apostles' teaching, growing in Christ together. And they got to see the work of the Holy Spirit in action. That is the dream, that is the goal, that is the prize that we look for. That's why we are here today is so that we can build our unity in Christ so that we can see people saved. That is the goal and the desire of Calvary Chapel, this church right here, right now. So there's a fourth reality that motivates unity. It's that of affection and compassion. Those qualities that characterize Christ, am I right? Compassion, affection. Compassion can also be translated as merciful. And again, we see to be imitators of Christ. In in Luke chapter 6, he says, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Be compassionate as your Father is compassionate. You know, there's an implied negative to all, there's an implied negative side to all four of these positive admonitions. And that is that failing to seek and preserve spiritual unity weakens Christ's church. And even more significant Such failure to pursue unity is a sin. If we are not pursuing unity as a church, if we are not pursuing unity as individuals, we are walking in sin. It's just what it is. So Paul doesn't just leave him there. He doesn't like, hey, have these things about you. 
And they're like, all right, see you guys. He gives them, he gives them some more. Paul now gives them four essential marks of spiritual unity. He says in chapter, in, uh, chapter two, verse two in Philippians, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, <coughs> maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. There's four things. The first being of the same mind. The phrase literally means to think the same thing or to be like-minded. Now, Paul is not talking about doctrines or moral standards here. Those are his other books, his other letters. You know, to the Galatians, he's talking doctrine. To the Ephesians, he's talking doctrine. To the Corinthians, he's talking moral standards. Here, he's talking about having a mind that is focused on spiritual things, the things of Christ and not the world. So remember, these people are already doing the work of the gospel. They are already together in the gospel. He is encouraging them. It's kind of like what I see here for us. A lot of churches will receive a message like this because there's division in the church. And the pastor gives the message just hoping to like unite his church. That's not the reason for a message like this this morning. A reason for a message like this this morning is that we can accomplish great things together unified for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and that's what it's about. Together we can do these things. And so in Romans chapter 8, Paul gives a clear understanding of what he means when he says something like this, when he says to be of the same mind. Romans 8 verse 5 says, not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. And then Paul reminds the Colossian believers that conflict in the church always comes from believers setting their minds on the things that are on earth rather than the things that are above, Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. So what he's saying is continue to keep your eyes on the prize. Don't be caught up in the things of this world. Don't be caught up with the things of what am I going to do? What am I going to have? You know, what's my next this? What's my next that? Keep your eyes on the Lord and be thinking about the Lord together. Be in unity thinking about the spiritual things of this world. Instead of what job am I going to get? How am I going to glorify God in my job? How am I going to exalt the name of Jesus in my workplace? Whatever house I move into, how am I going to change my neighborhood for Jesus? Not, does it have a marble entryway? He wants us to be focused on the spiritual things of this world. Nothing against marble entryways. I don't want you walking away like, oh man, it's picking on me again, my marble entryway. The question really that he's saying is, what does the Lord desire? Put your mind on those things. That is how you have unity of mind, is by thinking on the things that the Lord desires. You know, the Calvary Chapel movement is actually a great example of this. Nikita and I saw the Jesus Revolution when it was in theaters, and then just like, I think like three or four nights ago, we watched it again um, at home. Um, <clears throat> it's so powerful for me to watch that movie. Um, I feel like it's some of my spiritual, watching my spiritual fathers, you know, because I, I, when I got saved in college, I was going to Chuck's church and listening to Greg on Monday nights, and I was experiencing these guys, and so watching this, but... But here's the deal, 
There were some differences in theology. There were some differences between Chuck and Lonnie. There's some differences that are happening. But you know why the movement became what it became? Why it was a Jesus revolution? Why thousands of people were getting baptized and coming to know Jesus as Savior? Why there's more than a thousand Calvary Chapel churches today? Is because their minds were on spiritual things. They cared about advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people around them. They didn't think about earthly things. They didn't think about earthly, they didn't care what you wore, if you're wearing shoes into church, what you wore, you know, what, how much money you had, what kind of car you drove. It didn't, none of that stuff mattered. It was all about Jesus and people getting saved. Any movement in Christ that flourishes, I just picked the Calvary Chapel one because I was just watching the movie. Any movement that flourishes in Christ is a movement that is focused on the spirit and what God wants, spiritual things, the love of the Lord. So the second mark of spiritual unity is maintaining the same love, which flows out of being of the same mind. To have the same love here, what Paul means is to love others equally. No preferential treatment. He, the word he uses here is, he, he could use you know, agape or phileo or eros, and he uses agape which is this agape love is the love that we know that God loves us with. It's the love that is, is unconditional, but it comes from the will. It comes from the spirit. Agape love is the love of will, not preference or attraction. It is based on, I love this right here, uh, intentional, conscious choice to seek the welfare of its object. It's because agape love is based on the will that it can be commanded. God never commands you to find somebody attractive, right? He's not like, hey, that's the one for you. You better find her attractive. That's, that's not how it works. But God commands agape love from his people to one another, which is, I mean, of all the things to be commanded, to love one another, is such a sweet, sweet thing from our Lord. But it's also a hard thing. You know, it's easy to understand, but it's hard to apply. In John's first letter, chapter three, he says, for this message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. I want to tell you this. If you have yet to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, this idea of agape love, this unconditional love for your brothers and sisters, for the people around you, for the world around you, it might feel foreign. It might feel like, I don't, I'm not going to love that person. That person has wronged me. There's no way I'm going to love that person. But when we understand and you have a full realization of what the cross means, that Jesus came and he loved you so much, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And when he loved you so much that he took the cross and he bore your sin and shame. When you experience that love for the first time, it opens your heart to be able to love others. It opens your heart in a way that you have never experienced and never expected. You were able to love people that you hated. 
It's because of what Christ has done for you. I love the last verse of this where he says, whoever does not love abides in death. It's really a mark of your relationship with God or if you're a believer. If you cannot love, you maybe have not yet experienced truly the love of Christ. It says he abides in death. We know from Scripture that we go from death to life when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. Our our lives are changed forever. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that every man in Christ is a new creation. We have a new birth. John 3, we are born again. So if we abide in the old life by not loving, maybe we don't have the new life. So I want to challenge you, if you struggle with loving, look at your relationship with God. Have you submitted yourself to Jesus? And if not, today is the day of salvation. The third mark of spiritual unity is being united in spirit. I love this. It literally, it's called, the word is sumpsukos, okay? Uh, which probably you don't say it like that. But it means united. It literally means one soul. One soul. Being united in the spirit. Such unity involves a deep and passionate concern for God, his word, his work, his gospel, and his people. No two Christians no matter what their level of spiritual maturity, will agree on every single doctrinal and theological thing. It's impossible. But if they're controlled by humility and love, they will be genuinely united in the Spirit. So if you look to the person to the left and to the person to the right, you will not agree 100% theologically. If you want to go to a church where you believe with everybody 100% theologically, Stay home. It's not going to happen. But please don't stay home. Please be united in Christ. And so we're united together, standing together, which is the fourth mark is being intent on one purpose, which he gave in Philippians 1.27. The one purpose is standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In Colossians, Paul beautifully summarizes these marks of spiritual unity. In Colossians 3, you can turn there if you'd like, there's four four or five verses here. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, he says, So, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Again, like fruits of the Spirit, right? It's all about the Spirit. Our connection, our unity is all about the Spirit. And forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should forgive. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, And be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you with all wisdom and teaching, wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Man, it's all about being one. 
It's all about being one. So Paul gave four realities that motivate unity. He gives four essential marks of spiritual unity. Now he's going to give four means of achieving spiritual unity. So Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So the first means of achieving spiritual unity is to reject selfishness. I mean, it's no surprise that selfishness is what comes here. Selfishness is the root to pretty much every single sin that you will commit. And he's like, throw away sin. Get rid of the selfishness. It was selfishness that saw Satan try to take over God. It was selfishness in the garden where Adam and Eve put their will above God's will. Selfishness is a consuming and destructive sin. And the first person that it consumes and destructs is the one who manifests it. And then everybody else around. Like the sin in the garden was self-destructive to Adam and Eve, and then it affected every single man, woman, and child that would be born on this earth. Even when it is not outwardly manifested, when we don't see the selfishness in someone, selfishness breeds anger, resentment, and jealousy in our hearts. No church, not even the most doctrinally sound church, can deal with selfishness in the body of Christ. Selfish ambition quickly divides and weakens a church. It's often clothed in pious rhetoric by those who are convinced of their own superior abilities. It's from a lack of humility. So he tells them to throw off selfishness, get rid of it. The second one, the second means of achieving spiritual unity is forsaking empty conceit. There's two really cool words here. So, so we talk about what Jesus did when he came to earth. We call that the, the kenosis. It's called the emptying. So this right here is kenos and doxa are the two words. Empty glory. Because any glory that is sought for ourselves is empty glory. There's only one to whom should receive glory and honor and praise, and that is God. It refers to a highly exaggerated view, a highly exaggerated self-view, which is nothing but empty conceit. I love that King James renders this as vain glory. Selfish ambition pursues personal goals. Empty conceit seeks personal glory and acclaim. So I was here on um, Thursday, and I was, uh, I was talking with a, a friend of mine. His name is Dr. Forrest. He's this Great grandfather to some of the kids that go to Summit here. Great guy. He has a uh, doctorate in ministry from Liberty University. And I was talking to him about what I'm teaching on this week. And he goes, oh, that reminds me of Herod. And I was like, tell me more. And he goes, you know, when he was eaten by the worms and, you know, he's probably, and I was like, ooh, I'm going to use that on Sunday. So thank you, Bruce. Love you. Here's the story. This is Acts chapter 12. 21 through 24, it says, on an appointed day, 
having put on his royal apparel. So, so he's, got his, you know, he's got his swag on, right? So he's got his, like, royal, he's got his robes. I imagine like um, Lena and Lauren, when they were in the, uh, the road to Bethlehem, you know, they were like sitting there with their like royal swag. And they were, you know, they played that part so good. Um, you just imagine he's ready. And he starts to give the speech. And as he gives the speech, the people, it says in verse 22, the people kept crying out, the voice of a God not of a man. And he accepted the vain glory, this kinos doxa. He accepted this and did not rebuke them for calling him God. And it says in verse 23, and immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. And just like in Acts 2, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. So I used to think, okay, there's little kids in here. Okay, we're okay. Uh, I, I thought maybe we should, this is going to get a little like, you know, graphic is the right word. But, but I used to think of like that he fell over on the ground right there and like worms just kind of, and like he like just sunk into the ground and like he was no more. But there's actually a very specific word here for worm. It's the word, so there was, there was a word for worm, like, you know, like earthworm or like a worm that's like in the ground. This, wor this word was the very word that they used to describe the head of a tapeworm. Literally emptying him because of his vain glory. Josephus, the first century historian, says that he actually lived four or five more days. So it wasn't that he was struck down and died immediately. It doesn't say immediately. That he struck him and he died. So four or five days, he has nothing. He's maybe feeding himself, but feeding nothing. Because the only way to really be fed is by the word of the Lord. Not by vain conceit or vain glory should stand as, a, as an encouragement to us and as a warning to us about how seriously God takes people who seek the glory that belongs to the Father. It's his. The third means of achieving spiritual unity is humility of mind. It's the very opposite of selfish, selfish ambition and vain conceit. Humility is the, of the mind is the bedrock of Christian virtues. And it's the bedrock of spiritual unity. You have to be humble to be united. If we think we are better, then we miss it. It's no mistake that the Beatitudes mention being poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. Jesus even describes himself as gentle and humble in heart. Humility also is a dominant theme of the Old Testament. I have a bunch of verses here, but I'm just gonna read the one. In Psalm 37, the humble will inherit the land. So important to Jesus that he references that verse in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Humility was so important. The fourth means of achieving spiritual unity is that of looking out for others' interests. Another one that requires deliberate and persistent effort to apply sincerely and unconditionally. It's also another one that's easy to understand and hard to do. Our nature, our sin nature that we were born with, that constantly wants to battle the new nature that we have in Christ, tells us 
Look out for yourself. You know, the world today, they use these phrases like, you do you, you know, take care, take care of you first. You're number one. Take care of number one. The world is trying to train us to not look out for one another. So as we, as we kind of see what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to do it, and what it looks like, Paul gives us the example. He tells us in Ephesians to be imitators of Christ, and here he gives us, he just lays it out, the example of Jesus. So starting in verse five in Philippians two, have this attitude in yourselves. So the, to be unified in Christ, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, that's the kenosis, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this, this passage here, what we call kenosis, what we call emptying, we talked about this during the Advent season, we talked about the Advent of love, that he would do this thing is incredible. What it is, is it's a self-renunciation, not an emptying of himself and his deity. He is 100% God, 100% man, but Jesus did set aside some of his privileges when he became the God-man on earth. He left heavenly glory while on earth, he's just a man, living the way men live, missing the fellowship of being at the right hand of the Father, he gave up his independent authority. During his incarnation, Christ completely submitted himself to the will of the Father and the Spirit. We know that right after his baptism, it says that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He submitted himself to the will of the Spirit. So this timeline that he lays here is, is incredible. He existed in the form of God, so he is God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He is God. And then the next sentence is really, is really interesting. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That, it sounds weird when you read it. Like, did, wait, he didn't understand he was God? Like, what, what is, no. What this means is he was holding loosely to the greatest thing in the world, pure fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. He was holding loosely to it to fulfill his call to be the Messiah. Before the foundation of the world, he was the Lamb of God. And he's holding loosely to what he had to be the Messiah. He wasn't holding on and begging and, no, don't, no, no, I'm not going. No, he was like, I'm going. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be hard, difficult. I'm going to die. I'm going to bear the sins of the world upon my shoulders. But I'm going to do it. If that is not thinking of others more highly than yourself, I don't know what is. And so he emptied himself. He took on the form of a bondservant, likeness of men, found in the appearance of man. He humbled himself. And then we think about the cross, the most cruelest form of punishment in the Roman world. Hung on a tree. 
the Savior of the, the He created the tree. He created the people who hung him on the tree. And he did it because he loves. Talk about consolation of love. But just like we get to see the reward when we live in unity, as Christ fulfilled the unity with the Father and the Spirit in what he was called to do, he saw a reward. That he was given the name above every other name. That at his name, every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. He accomplished these things and gave us the perfect example of what Paul is calling us to do. And so church, that's what I want to challenge us to do this morning. Let us reject selfishness. Throw off empty conceit. Have a right view of ourselves in the light of Christ and look out for one another. We will be unified in Christ. I wrote this little piece here as an end it's kind of a prayer that let us agree to be of one spirit and one mind and one heart as we pursue Jesus together as a local church. Let it be said that Calvary Chapel Eastside is a church that is full of love, humility, and sacrifice. And the name of Jesus is glorified there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray for unity in spirit. Lord, we thank you that we get to be in your presence. We get to be called to be close to you and near you. And we pray that the love that we have experienced from you, from the cross, poured out on us, and the love that has been given to us as you have sent us another helper, that you have sent the Spirit to be with us and in us. Lord, I pray that we would have unity through that. That our relationships with one another would be so much deeper than what the world offers as friendship and love. That our friendship and love would flow from the Spirit that is inside of us. We would connect with other believers through the Spirit of God. Lord, challenge us and change us. Make us more like your son. Help us to fulfill Paul's words and be imitators of you so that people see our love and are changed by your spirit. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their savior this morning, that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day that they would say, I have not yet really known love. And they would want to experience your love this morning. If that's you this morning, I pray that you would give your life now to Jesus. That you would say, I surrender. Forgive me of my sins. I repent from my sins. I will turn from my sins and follow you, Jesus. Lord, I thank you for your blood that was shed upon the cross. I thank you for your love. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for all that you have done to bring us together in Christ. Lord, change us. In your name, amen.